0: You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash Open Mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and this is the second of two programs dealing with what perhaps we should call the marketplace of American medical practice. Once again, my guest is Dr. Peter Bach, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York. Dr. Bach has written frequent opinion pieces for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, valuing as he does ever more extensive communication between the medical profession and the lay public. The last time my guest used a phrase many of us have only recently begun to hear, hospitalist. He is one. And I'd like him not only to define again this new medical specialty, but also to define the implications of its existence for our traditional doctor-patient relationship. Fair question?
1: Absolutely. And thank you again for having me. Uh, one minor clarification, I'll define hospitalist and explain why I'm not one, if you will. Okay, but, fair uh, enough. But the, the, there has been a shift, if you will, in the workforce structure in healthcare. And this, with relation to hospitalists, this shift is that, if you will, in ancient times, let's say five years ago or more, uh, traditionally doctors followed their patients into the hospital. So the same doctor you saw regularly when you were relatively healthy, when you became sick, would, did, that same doctor would take care of you in the hospital. They would make rounds in the morning. They would check on you. They would talk to the uh, usually physicians in training in the hospital or other staff, and then they would go back to their offices and take care of their other patients who were outpatients.
0: Who was in charge of the patient care at
1: that time? Well, at that time, uh, usually it was your regular doctor, if you will, the one who you saw on the outside. Um, Those doctors had privileges in the hospital where they admitted you. And even though there may be other doctors in the hospital that you would see, usually your attending physician or your physician of record was your, if you will, your regular doctor. There's been a shift, rather rapid, uh, that... Uh, patients who are being admitted now to the hospital and there's a specialized doctor who works within the hospital who then takes over the responsibility of your care. A doctor many of us refer to as hospitalists. And those doctors are typically employed by the hospital and they work on a salary. And their expertise is essentially taking care of people who are quite a bit sicker than patients who are outpatients. They understand the system within the hospital better. They're usually better networked within the hospital. They're familiar with the sort of intricacies and also idiosyncrasies of the particular hospital where they're employed. And they take care of the patient until the time comes to discharge them back to their outpatient setting and then care is transferred back to the patient's doctor. I'm not a hospitalist, although I exclusively see patients in a hospital. That's an artifact of my specialty. I'm a pulmonologist and I happen to only serve one pulmonary function, which is I see patients who are sick enough to be in the hospital who also have a pulmonary problem. But I could be taking care of patients on the outside if, if my, if you will, my life were structured differently.
0: Okay. Let's go back to the hospitalist himself or herself. And indeed, is it mostly herself these days?
1: It's a good question. I don't know the ratio, but it's probably fairly close to 50-50. The the hospitalist, uh, the emergence of hospitalists is interesting for a number of reasons. One, and we talked about this, I think, last week, was that uh, it's evidence that there are doctors coming into the workforce who are ready more so to do shift work, to be employed, to get regular old salaries and W-2 statements, and are less, if you will, entrepreneurial. And in exchange for that, they get, you know, a stable work environment, they get regular benefits, and they get an ability to have a flexible schedule. And those are all things that are desirable, I think, to people who are coming into the workforce now more today than, you know, even a few years ago. Why? There could be any number of explanations. One is that going into sort of the entrepreneurial practice of medicine has become a lot less attractive, or in basic terms, become a lot less lucrative. Uh, So... You know, the the willingness that people have to kind of hang out a shingle and take all that risk and do all that extra work and all of a sudden become experts in running offices and the rest of it is diminished because the returns are, are lower. Uh, it could be that administrative complexity has also risen, making those sorts of activities even more challenging. Uh, but it also could be that, you know, we have a new breed of people entering the medical profession who want to work in sort of team structures and have a different work-life balance and, you know, are more accepting of an idea that, like most people in America, they can be employed by a larger entity and work in a collective way.
0: Now, just between the two of us...
1: Yes. Am I better off... You're not off- saying much about the size of your viewership, <laughs> but okay.
0: Am I better off, as a patient, uh, if it is true that the entrepreneurial aspect of the practice of medicine is perhaps diminished or being diminished
1: these days? Uh, nobody knows. It, is, it has been become uh, in recent years a sort of a calling card of health care reform that we should get doctors onto a different financial incentive structure. For example, salaries are things that start to look more like salaries, all based on the premise that if, if I'm receiving a salary I'm less likely to do additional services that are not beneficial or are potentially harmful. Uh, purely for the profit of doing so. Uh, that makes basic economic sense. There's some evidence that such things occur more often when doctors have a financial benefit of doing more things, but we're not, it, it's not clear, really, if you took the current workforce and shifted them from these sort of financial incentives to a salaried structure, if they would actually, if you will, behave better, differently, or in a way that serves your health better. We don't really know.
0: Let me ask whether I'm, you think that I'm correct in my assumption that most people, patients, are as innocent or as unknowing uh, or as plain dumb as I am when one begins to talk about hospitalists and the shift in the nature of medical
1: practice. I, I don't think most People, even educated people, even some policy analysts understand or have good insight into the complexity of how medical care is either delivered or financed or in this case staffed it, it, it's you know we're talking about three quarters of a million practicing physicians in this in the United States, um, i think somewhat more nurses than that uh, we're talking about seventeen fifteen percent of the u s economy something you know so this is it's a very large complex thing and It wouldn't surprise me at all that most people don't know about hospitalists as sort of one slice of how we manage or how we're starting to manage patients who become sick and have to go in the hospital. But what an
0: incredibly important slice
1: that is. Perhaps. Uh, You know, the the data that we have, it's it's not fully consistent. The data we have suggests that the hospitalists have not harmed care quality. And if anything, maybe outcomes are slightly better. And they have led to because, if you will, they understand the nuances or idiosyncrasies of where they practice, they are able to achieve shorter lengths of stay with the same kind of outcome, just, you know, save a half day here or there because they're preparing or they're a little bit more up to speed on something to do. Uh, You have to realize that it's, the fact that we have more hospitalists may not be, not have been driven by more people being willing to go into it, if you will, but rather, a shift in how much care is provided on the outpatient side compared to the inpatient side. It used to be, if you will, that a lot of care was provided inside the hospital to patients who were, if you will, moderately ill as well as very ill. We have increasingly moved the patients who are moderately ill, if you will, back to the outpatient setting, keeping people from having to go in the hospital. That's a good thing. The consequence for your doctor, however, is that in the old days, they might say, for argument's sake, have on any particular day three or four patients in the hospital, making the trip to the hospital, if you will, worth it, worth their time, and just you know making their relationship with the hospital more consistent. And maybe nowadays they have one potential patient in the hospital, and then you sort of start to wonder, like, does it make sense for them to go all the way to the hospital? You know, we live in New York City, but you know, so for many many cases, it's a crop, we're talking about across the street, but. Most of the U.S. is not across the street. It involves a car ride. It involves parking your car right? 20 minutes, 30 minutes each way. And if you only have one patient in the hospital, it starts to make less sense.
0: But doesn't it, and I'm asking you again as an innocent, uh, although I think I, I told you before that my grand old physician years ago, Mac Lipkin, had said uh, when he was about to retire, said, Dick, stay out of the hospital because they're getting to, and I guess he was describing what you've just described, the hospitalist, getting to the point where I or my counterpart cannot be in charge of your care, but somebody you don't know and I don't know will be. So what about the impact upon the patient's uh, sense of dependence upon the doctor he sees few times a year. He depends upon his family sees the same person. What about that personal connection?
1: Well, let me answer that a couple of ways. Uh, the first is there's no empiric data. I don't mean to act all scientist or anything, but we don't know. I don't think it's been carefully measured uh, about those effects. Another answer is, you know, of the important parameters, uh, of course, everyone should care deeply about patient satisfaction and experience of care. But, you know, we have a healthcare system that is bloated and costly and actually doesn't provide as high quality care as it could or as other countries do, which are similar. So, you know, my top priority, if you will, is not the patient's experience with care, care about it. It's those other things, you know, actually making sure that they get the best care that we can get to them. Uh, the next is that it sounds like you you had a You have you know a a tight relationship with your doctor, but the data don't suggest that that's the experience of most patients at all. That you know this notion of that you know each individual hazard doctor sort of a Marcus Welby idea, or Moonlight Graham, if you want to think of Field of Dreams, since you're a movie fan. Uh, That most people don't. You know doctors, and we talked about this last week. Patients and doctors sort of bounce around in this way that was unexpected before a number of analyses, including one I was involved in, showed that. There is no such bond for most patients. And that that reality is important to sort of work around. And if it's chaos on the outside, if you will, then actually having consistency within the hospital is something we should find desirable.
0: Tell me more about that, because you're right. I, I think of uh, Richard Cohn, my internist now, and I can't imagine doing without him or not being able to... Um, have him guide my medical destinies, as I had with Mac Lipkin years mm-hmm. before. Uh, is this not typical? Are you
1: suggesting that- No, by definition, it's, it's, it's highly atypical. right? The, the average patient in Medicare, you know, our work and other people, some of the government uh, groups that analyze Medicare data have shown, the average patient in Medicare sees about seven different doctors a year and 20 or 30% of those patients turn over to different groups of doctors each year those doctors don't necessarily work together and as patients develop more and more conditions they actually see more doctors and the variation between the doctors they see rises and so it is it is the antithesis of what you would want if if you believe that you know an individual doctor who gets to know you well is, is sort of the path to both satisfaction and high quality care we don't have that we have
0: let me in. let me ask you a question i don't think it's an unfair one you can yell foul do you think that's a more desirable relationship to have a patient with his physician? Because at times you're a patient.
1: I'd, I think, oh, sure. You mean as opposed to bouncing around randomly to doctors no. who don't know you? No, no,
0: as opposed to uh, being at the tender mercy of a hospitalist.
1: Oh, uh, if I had my druthers, I actually think uh, a, a seamless uh, interface, if you will, or path of communication between an outpatient doctor and one who's expert in patient care is probably preferable to having doctors on the outside following patients into the hospital. The, the, so uh, I think we probably disagree because I get the sense that you think the opposite. Uh, I
0: feel the opposite when I think enough. I have to pay respect to your, uh, you're a researcher, you're a digger, you're looking for numbers, you're looking for facts. And I have only my feelings to Depend upon, uh,
1: But I'm facing, you know, fewer facts than I would like to have to assert, you know, with certainty. But we're going other.
0: ahead. You say you're facing, you must mean the profession. Right. Is the facing. Profession, the field, exactly. Okay. But we're going ahead nevertheless. So for economic reasons?
1: Not the first time. Uh, the, I mean, well, for some of the reasons I described, right? The, okay. the fewer patients in the hospital per doctor, rising population of doctors who want to do this kind of work. Uh, the ho- desire for the hospital to control the physicians uh, and have them, if you will, report up to the hospital because they're using the hospital's resources. Right? Wait, 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 wait. Let,
0: let's Let's develop that a bit. Uh, please expand upon the desire of the hospitals to control the physicians. Uh, well, You said it. I
1: didn't. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, no, it, it's, it, it's, if you will, another aspect of medical care that most people fail to grasp or perceive because it's sort of hidden, but... The, the current construct is the hospital, if you will, is a, is a physical building, right, that's staffed and it's got things like beds. But the people who use the resources of the hospital, I mean the patients, of course, but people who direct the use of resources within the hospital, like which patient has to be in which bed, what happens within that bed, what the nurse provides them when they go have an x-ray or an operation or something like that, are doctors who most in most places in the U.S. don't have a, a uh, don't, if you will, report up to the hospital. They have complex relationships with the hospital. The hospital makes money as a result of the doctors providing their services within them. But, you know, the use of beds, the use of these other things there's a bit of a push-pull there. So an alternative model, and I happen to be a salaried physician employed by a hospital working at Sloan Kettering, but an alternative model is exactly that. I essentially report up to the hospital my use of the hospital resources on behalf of my patients, something I'm accountable to at the level of the hospital. And so it allows, if you will, for everyone's interests and goals uh, to be better aligned. It's really important in areas like uh, quality improvement and patient safety, infection control. Those are one family of things that hospitals and doctors who work for those hospitals can kind of worry about and work on together in a team way. Uh, But other areas it's also important to in terms of homogenizing patient care, following evidence-based medicine, uh, migrating patients and doctors, if you will, to, ever newer versions of electronic health records and things like that. Having everyone be employed makes it start to look like any other industry where, you know, the place where the things are built hires the people who are doing the building inside.
0: You're not saying this, I gather, <coughs> with a sigh. You're not saying this is the way it is, I de me.
1: I, you know, I, I'm a policy analyst. I, uh, some of what All I'm All the more about is,
0: reason for me to ask you.
1: No, but I mean some of them just, I mean, you know, it's just sort of statement of fact. This is what's happening. I think that there's a strong belief that this is a structure that's going to be better uh, for patients and better for an evolving health care landscape. For example, I mentioned electronic health records. Right. Uh, the, for sure, the healthcare reform law contemplates versions of this better integration. The accountable care organization concept is based on not necessarily- restructuring the financial relationship between physicians and hospitals. It doesn't require hospitals to hire their own doctors, if you will, but it does contemplate a a financial tie between those two that's much more linked to, if you will, their ability to collectively provide care at a lower cost and of higher quality. So that, you know, obviously suggests some sort of coordination and rowing in the same direction.
0: You mentioned several times, this week and last week, uh, electronic record keeping etc, you feel this is a very important part of the whole development uh,
1: I do i, I don 't think anyone in the right mind would imagine that a highly functioning healthcare system wouldn 't have an electronic backbone we don 't have it now. Getting there will be hard. Uh, the software that 's available, the records that are available are not up to the task. Uh, the competition between vendors has caused all sorts of uh, i think unanticipated problems such as vendors locking records in a structure that can't then be read by some other vendor's software, which we've obviously seen in other areas in the software industry. But uh, I can't imagine that we can get to where we want to without having, you know, it all being based on electronic for exchange of ideas and and data. We're nowhere close to that right now.
0: What about time lag in terms of age of physicians? In this, if we're going to have a no man's land in which physicians between the ages of fifty and seventy, right now, are not really going to be able to function terribly well.
1: You mean in an electronic age? Yeah. Uh, if
0: we have uh, what you think we need to have?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we certainly see at our hospital that the doctors, you know, are able to adopt. You know, we're fully electronic, and our doctors who span decades in age. Uh, have been able to adopt the systems that, you know, we've, we've integrated into all aspects of care. So, you know, obviously it's traditional to assume that old fogies can't run computers, but, uh, you know, I don't think we've necessarily seen that. It certainly could be the case at younger people. I know in my office I'm always, I always call young people when I can't figure out something in Microsoft Excel or something. So it's, uh, there's some generational effect, but hopefully the tools are developed by people in ways that uh, can be adopted by anyone.
0: I suppose it's a sidebar issue, but does the matter of privacy enter into this consideration, this important consideration of electronic records?
1: I think it's everyone's top priority. Really? Yes, because, uh, you know, the old expression that, you know, it, humans can mess things up, but it takes a computer to create a real disaster, uh, is bears heavily on, weighs heavily on people. So the issues of privacy are important. Uh, right now, uh, there are really quite a few, not only safeguards or regulations in place that I think would mostly, at least strongly, discourage people from being sloppy. That doesn't mean that uh, things couldn't happen, but I'm not aware of any important uh, privacy breach that's ever happened in healthcare as a result of the advent of electronic health records. And hopefully, our systems are up to snuff. That said, you, you never want to create any system where you absolutely require yourself to drive, drive some parameter to zero uh, because it creates such constraints on everything else. So I think the truth is, and I could never be a politician because you can't say things like this, but the truth is that if we obsess to the point of not tolerating any errors or leaks in privacy, uh, we'll never get anywhere. Uh, That doesn't mean we should just be free form about it or willy-nilly, but I think the reality is, you know, we need to figure out ways to move forward with systems. There will be mistakes.
0: Uh, Where? How? Don't know. You must anticipate something.
1: Oh, I don't. No, hardly. Uh, No, I just, I know the reality is that, you know, as we...
0: Murphy's Law, if something can go wrong, it will? Simple as that? Uh,
1: I think it's probably more the the law of increasingly complex systems operating in systems that aren't designed to accommodate them is the problem. And uh, I think this is why we see the kinds of mistakes that periodically get made. But... I'm making a much more basic, if you will, philosophical point that, you know, it's, we can't move forward if we cannot tolerate mistakes uh, because right now there's estimates that suggest there's 100,000 deaths a year due, due to patient safety errors and every reason to believe that an electronic health record and system would drive that number down sizably. How many of those deaths would we have to avoid to tolerate a leak, a privacy violation? I think- you know, and probably not that many, you know, because those lives matter a great deal.
0: Let me ask you uh, a very different area of question, uh, and we only have four or five minutes left, um, about the young people who are thinking or who might have been thinking about medicine. What, what, what are the words of advice? And I raise the question because so many of my friends who are doctors tell me, they tell their children, don't go into medicine.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have a young child. and so We're still working on whether he's going to be a professional soccer player or a fireman. Uh, but, I, you know, it's a tremendous profession. It's tremendously rewarding. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, that, You know, like I said, the old days of medicine with the doctors having the houses on the water are gone. Uh, the, those houses now belong to people who create financial instruments or figure out how to get people to click on internet ads. And that's a reality. That's a sad reality. A friend of a colleague of mine and I proposed that we create a different structure for paying for medical school where we essentially could make it free for people. Uh, And I think that would be an important part of making medical school work and being a doctor work because right now we have this mismatch between a very heavy debt burden that people take on to go to medical school and really a very bad way of trying to pay that back because many of the professions that are desirable for other reasons like primary care uh, pay at such low rates that really taxes people and serves as a disincentive and drives people to specialize probably more than we need.
0: I I was aware of your colleague and your uh, uh, thought about this. Any reaction to it?
1: It, it's actually been tremendous uh, and we have spoken to people you know, in Washington about it as well as many of the organizations uh, who worry about many aspects of medical school as well as the fellowship training because if you remember part of the proposal was actually to shift who got paid when they were doing their specialty and subspecialty training. And I actually, you never know, but I feel like it's something that could be done is desirable. We think is doable within the Medicare regulations. That matters because Medicare pays for specialty and specialty training through things called like indirect medical expenditure uh, reimbursements. Uh, but you know, it's I believe it's a fully logical idea that pays for itself and would have numerous positive benefits. Anyone who's been around healthcare policy will say oh, those are the parameters that guarantee its failure. But uh, I'm not yet that cynical.
0: If I remember correctly, you weren't talking about an outrageously expensive proposition here.
1: No, it, it's a wash, actually, as currently constructed. Nothing is a wash, but uh, no, it is. In this case, uh, the cost, the full cost of educating people in medical school right now, on an annual basis, is the same as the cash compensation of people doing subspecialty training, like within a few dollars. And so, all we proposed was medical school is free if you do some specialty training like primary care, you get paid during that specialty training, but if you go on to subspecialize in something like pulmonary medicine, my specialty, during that training period, instead of getting a salary, you would get nothing. You'd get benefits, but that would be the time you would take out loans to pay for your life, and because when you come out as a pulmonologist, you're well much better compensated than when you come out as a primary care physician. The debt burden for financing medical school would sit on the people who went into higher paying professions like pulmonary medicine.
0: Dr. Bach, I hope that you get more and more people to pay attention to what you're suggesting. Meanwhile, I want to thank you for joining me again on The Open Mind.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash Open Mind.